Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about David Drake's collection of novellas, and also maybe a novel called Old Nathan. This collection was originally published in 1991. And this is another episode that was commissioned by one of our really generous, really awesome Patreon supporters. We're so grateful to have that kind of support. And of course, so grateful for the opportunity to talk about this book, which was a lot of fun. I loved reading this book so much. I had such a blast with it. I echo your thanks, Glenn, and your gratitude for our Patreon supporters who commissioned this book. What a great time. What a great couple weeks I've had reading this. So as you said, Brandon, this is a collection of related novellas, though there is also some sense in which it's telling a, a complete and coherent story. That's going to be one of our talking points, of course. But the plan for this episode is to talk about the, the setting and the character first, then give some summaries of each story. Then we're going to talk about these stories through the lens of occult detective fiction, and then also talk about it as historical fiction. All of that will make more sense in about five minutes. And then we, of course, we'll talk about writing craft. That's something that we just absolutely love to do. And we're going to pay particular attention to talking about how this works as a collection of related stories, but then also how these stories work as standalone stories as well. This is a topic that matters to the two of us as writers a great deal. And I think actually there's a lot here for us to chew on in terms of writing craft. And that's going to be really useful, I think, for us to, to talk through, Brandon. But before we get into any of that, I'd actually just like to know, Brandon, about your experience with David. Drake. I came across David Drake for the first time probably when I was 19 uh, and going to bookstores a lot. And he had a lot of the military sci-fi books on the shelves, uh, which I wasn't super interested in at the time. But then a friend of mine recommended the Lord of the Isles series, uh, which I picked up the first one, which is called Lord of the Isles and read it and absolutely fell in love with it. And haven't read David Drake since, except rereading that book a number of times throughout the years, every time I want just a really cozy fantasy read. And I got to tell you, so first of all, Lord of the Isles is one of my favorite fantasy novels. I don't have too much other experience with David Drake, but reading this made me think like, I got to read everything this guy's written. I love the way he writes and I love the way he tells stories. So anyway, that's my experience with David Drake. What about, what about you, Glenn? Yeah, I mean, actually, I was surprised to hear that you've got some experience with David Drake because I I thought that his writing heyday uh, may have just come a little bit before you would have been seeing his books in in bookshops. But also, I think just for clarification, your experience with reading David Drake that was when you were in the army, and so there's a real reason why you had one book and read it a whole bunch of times. That's kind right. of what we did in the army. Uh, for me, that book actually was Wizard's First Rule by Terry Goodkind, which I don't know. Perhaps we'll cover that someday somewhere on the network, because I know you have lots of thoughts about it as well. But yeah, it sounds like Lord of the Isles played that role for you. But David Drake, for me, is someone who I have never read before, but I've been well aware of David Drake almost my entire life, literally for as long as I can remember, because I would see his books all the time, uh, just you know, huge occupying a huge part of the bookshelves in my local bookshop, and I just never got any of them. He was always on my mental list of writers to check out, and in particular, the books really appealed to me. I think a lot of his books were illustrated by Larry Elmore. Uh, certainly, Old Nathan, uh, the Old Nathan cover was done by Larry Elmore, and that is probably one that I saw in the bookshelf in 1991. 1991 would have been prime year for me to be browsing the science fiction fantasy section of my local bookshop equipped with gift card money from Christmas and my birthday, which follows shortly after Christmas. And I was always drawn to those covers because Larry Elmore also was the cover artist for uh, not every, but for a lot of Dragonlance novels. And the Dragonlance novels, which I don't know if I could ever really <laughs> recommend in good faith, though they are something I have a lot of nostalgia for. Nonetheless, I read a lot of them. And so I think I always had this sense that, well, when I finish reading all the Dragonlance books there are, I will go explore new writers 
such as David Drake, whose <laughs> books look very similar to the Dragonlance books, and just uh, just never never got to that. But like you, I absolutely loved the experience of reading Old Nathan, and in fact, I loved it so much that I decided just on my own, I'm going to go read some more David Drake and do some more podcasting about David Drake. And so, in a few months from now, uh, after this episode airs, I will be doing a, a solo episode on Atos, exactly on Lord of the Isles. In fact, Brandon, which I, did, I didn't realize that you had some affinity for that. So I don't know. Hopefully uh, you will you will enjoy my take on it. Oh, I'm sure I will. I, I actually can't wait to listen to that episode. <laughs> well, all right. Let's get into talking about Old Nathan, which is actually quite different from what Lord of the Isles is and certainly is quite different from some of his other works that I have seen. Military science fiction, that's something that you brought up. This is something wholly different from any of those things. In fact, what Old Nathan is, is a collection of related and, and also sequential, mostly novellas. Maybe one of these might technically qualify as a novelette. And they each feature Old Nathan, who is you know exactly what it says in the title. He's an old man named Nathan. His full name is Nathan Ridgeway, and he's in his 60s, he, he may even be pushing 70 at this point, but the story does not take place in any kind of secondary world. It's not an imaginary fantasy world. It's not an imaginary space opera setting. It takes place in our own world, in a, a real place and, and time in the past. The story takes place in central Tennessee. It's probably maybe... Marshall County, maybe Lewis County, something like that, based on some of the geography. Uh, it's not that explicit, though. And at any rate, the point is that it's you know, going to be south of Nashville. It's an extremely rural and agricultural area. I probably wouldn't have cared that much about where exactly this is, except that I have lived in Tennessee before. So I had some, <laughs> some interest in kind of trying to figure that out. But the other thing, of course, is that the story is also historical fiction. We don't get an explicit date for when the stories are taking place, though we can do some sleuthing. And uh, the sleuthing that I have done, and also the math that I have done then, leads me to believe that these stories are set in the late 1820s, maybe the early 1830s. And so what we're dealing with here is mostly rural homes that are like single-room log cabins, uh, though throughout the stories, we also are introduced to the varying social strata of the society. And so there are people with bigger homes. There is a town that we get in one of the stories as well. And the deal is this. Old Nathan is a wizard of, of sorts. Uh, cunning man is the term that is used in the story, though I think that uh, in current D&D parlance, the term that we would use is sorcerer because his power is innate rather than learned or studied. Uh, though to be clear, it is still not magic as a kind of superpower. Uh, he has to perform rituals, but Nathan sort of innately knows what to do, even as he he doesn't actually understand why any of it works, but he just instinctively knows what to do and how to work this this magic in the world. The one thing, though, that does not require a ritual, the one thing that he can do that doesn't require a ritual is that he can understand animals. And so he lives as a, a, a vegetarian, uh, though I guess technically that's not true. We actually learn in one of the stories that he is a pescatarian, really, which maybe says something about Drake's regard for fish. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, the point is there are a lot of talking animals in this book as well. And uh, in fact, the biggest interlocutor for old Nathan are the animals that he keeps uh, around his home and on the the farm that he, that he runs. And while I said that this power is innate. Uh, that's also perhaps not literally true in the sense that old Nathan was not born this way. Rather, what has happened is that he acquired these abilities following a serious injury at a battle in the American War of Independence. And that injury was to his genitals, which at first I thought I was misunderstanding because it was presented to us in uh, slang and, and dialect. We'll have more to say about that later. So I thought perhaps that maybe I was just misunderstanding, but we do get that spelled out a little more clearly to us later on in the book. And uh, it does actually, in fact, matter a little bit in the final story. And so, uh, yeah, at any rate, it turns out that more or less it's the exact plot of the sun also rises uh, that's how you get to talk to animals in this, <laughs> more, in this more or less yeah <laughs> you can imagine jake bards uh, <laughs> if only he could talk to the birds of france it might have been a different story <laughs> that we, that was definitely in hemingway's first draft for sure <laughs> 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 i would read that book anyway someone should write that book actually 
Yeah, that, that would be a, a treat. <laughs> but all right, I'm nearing the end here. So the last thing that I want to say before we get into some of the, the plot here is that the premise is that old Nathan is essentially an occult detective in rural Tennessee before the Civil War. His help is for sale. But also, he does use his powers pro bono when the situation calls for it, or maybe when the client calls for it. And this book, then, is a collection of five cases, though there is also some structure to the whole thing. And so now, at this point, we're going to start going through the stories. Brandon and I are just going to swap back and forth. Brandon gets the honor of doing three. I'll get to do two. And so, Brandon, you're up first. So walk us through the first story. The first story is called The Bull, and this is the story where Drake does a lot of that heavy lifting, Glenn, that you just did so beautifully uh, to introduce his audience to old Nathan. So he has to establish the setting, and the way he does that is that this story is about a plot of land in Tennessee that is haunted, and it really gives us a sense of the community and the environment that old Nathan lives in. So John Boardman, a wealthy neighbor of old Nathan, has gotten married and he needs Nathan to clear the curse on the land so that he can live there with his bride, who he's promised the land to. So old Nathan teams up with his favorite animal, uh, you know, and again, old Nathan can talk to animals. And this animal is a bull named Spanish King, and they do what is necessary to get the land cleared for use. And kind of as a final note of what we see repeated throughout these stories, we see that everyone sort of tries to cheat old Nathan out of what he's owed for performing his task. Right. That in itself, a pretty classic detective fiction trope, right? Where the, the client is also in a lot of ways kind of the, the bad guy <laughs> in the, of, of the story. Right. And yeah, I really enjoyed this story. And I thought it was a great introduction to the character in which there's a lot going on here with a ghost aurochs and that the hero of the of this story is actually the talking bull or you know at least the bull that old nathan can understand it really was a, a bold way i think to begin this collection with a story that emphasizes the animal component of this character so much it really surprised me. At first, I was wondering what I was getting myself into. It opens with a talking cat and a dog and a cat kind of expressing their animosity towards one another. And this just old man uh, who's got a black beard talking to animals and dealing with clients. And it's it's a lot to introduce a reader to who's used to, I don't know, say the tropes of today's more procedural fantasy fiction like the Dresden Files or even like Brandon Sanderson's world building. Again, this was written in the 90s, but we're reading it kind of having been familiar with all the tropes of today's writing. And we'll talk about that more, or at least I will. But I think Drake does such a good job of just bringing you right into the world. He doesn't need to explain a lot. It's just this is the situation. This is your character. He's got his client coming to the house and he's going to deal with this case. And uh, it's wonderful. This is not my favorite story. I think they get better. That's not to say it's a bad story, but this story has to do a lot of work to bring the reader into the world. Right. The the second story in the collection, which is called The the Gold, and it is exactly what it says on the box. It's going to be about some, some gold there, dips into some more classic, more conventional detective fiction or occult detective fiction tropes where we get a little more of a, of a human element here. In this story, the, the client is a wealthy landowner whose brother, who was also a wealthy landowner, died recently. But when he died, he hid his cash and also left a curse on it so that whoever finds the money really ought to give it back to the people that this wealthy man had exploited in order to, to get the money, in order to become rich. Uh, I mean, I describe him as a wealthy landowner, which is true, but I don't mean that he was uh, had great agricultural land and was farming it and becoming wealthy that way. It was more that he was uh, a shady real estate mogul is, is really what's going on here. Right. But yeah, and then the deal is that he's also a ghost now, and uh, he's actually already frightened off one person that the client has sent to go look for this you know, box of cash, the gold of the title. And so, you know, basically, this this character is Marley from A Christmas Carol, who died a wealthy man, regrets now that he, now that he's a ghost, regrets the way that he went about getting his his wealth because he realizes that he's going to uh, be eternally punished for that, and old Nathan has to assuage him. 
This story has a sort of biblical element to it. There's a parable in the New Testament um, about a wealthy man who was trying to get somebody to tell his brothers to stop being wealthy because they're going to end up in hell. Uh, but mostly this story felt to me like one of the classic M.R. James ghost stories that we've read. And I love that about this story. Yes, you're right. This felt exactly like The Treasure of Abbott Thomas, which also involves a ghost in a well, someone's hidden some money. The details are all very different than, than that, of course, but the, the bare bones of it are very, very similar. And yeah, had a classic ghost story feel to it. it it's the only ghost story that we that we get in here, or at least, you know, classic ghost story, ghost story that felt like, yeah, definitely could have been penned by M.R. James or E.F. Benson if they had lived in Appalachia instead of England. <laughs> right. Well, the the third story in this collection is called The Bullhead. This one really establishes old Nathan's unrequited romantic interest in Ellie Ranston. Uh, she's a much younger woman who reminds Nathan of a past lover. Ellie's husband, Cullen, or Bully, as he's called, has begun to have an affair with a woman in town who's recently moved there from New Orleans. Ellie thinks Bully is bewitched, but Nathan knows better. This new woman is essentially a novelty to all the men in town. So Nathan, partially out of his romantic interest in Ellie and partially in revenge to Bully, who ruined Nathan's catfish dinner, decides to help Ellie bring Bully home uh, with the use of some trickster magic and a bullhead fish. This is maybe the most comedic of the stories, but it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful tale. So just following along the trajectory of, of how these stories have gone so far in building the world is that in the first story, we get all of the sort of basic premises built into the story, but with a very limited cast. And, and really, the, the second most important character in that first story is is not a person, It's an, an, or not a human anyway, right? It's an, an animal. It's the talking bull. Then in the next story, we get introduced to the human element. We see the broader society. We get a bigger sense of, of how Central Tennessee circa 1830 is, is working. And now in this story, we get introduced to an even broader world where we have this woman who's come up from New Orleans. We actually get a, a glimpse of, of the South as a slave society here in this story, but also we get more backstory about old Nathan. And I think something that we should emphasize here about his unrequited love interest is that one, there there is a, a big age difference here, but also that even when old Nathan himself was young Nathan, when he was the same age as these other characters in the story, he had already received this injury to his genitals in the war. And so old Nathan has actually lived his entire life after his military service in the American War of Independence alone, unable to, to have a romance with anybody. And we see now in this story, the halfway point of the collection, that that's been a burden for him, that it's cool that he can talk to animals, but also all his best friends are animals, and that he's been pretty isolated from human society and feels that on some level, even as he's become, over the decades, comfortable with that. And this is a really great thing to be doing at the at the middle point here, because this is actually going to come, uh, unexpectedly to me, but this is going to come full circle. Well, maybe not full circle. What it's going to do is complete the arc, is what I'm trying to say. We're going to get this called back in the final story, where then we'll realize that Drake has actually been giving us a character arc for Old Nathan throughout all five of the stories. Yeah, you get the sense as you're reading this, and especially by the time you get to the third story, that these stories are connected. There are little, I guess we call them Easter eggs now, these little anchor pieces that recall past stories and things you've learned. If you read any detective series, you'll get these in in the books. You know, if you read book 13, they'll call back to book nine or something like that. And that's how it felt to me reading this. You know, we get more about the battle uh, and the injury that old Nathan suffered, but we already know he suffered it because he was made fun of by Bully in another story. And okay, Bully's back in this story and we're just working with a small local cast. And this is great. It still doesn't feel like a novel. And I think we're going to have a lot to say about the work that the fifth story does to really tie this whole collection together. But we have two more stories to go before we get there. Right. Yeah. So the fourth story is called The Fool. And the titular fool is a young man named Eldon Bowsmith, who is not very bright, 
but is good-natured. Uh, in fact, if anything, he's he's far too trusting. He sees the world through very rosy lenses indeed. The deal is that his mother died recently, and he is kind of helpless and, and maybe especially just clueless in the world of adults. And so a neighboring family, these are the Neals, uh, are helping him out with his farm, this farm that he's inherited now from his mother. Or at any rate, that is the way Eldon Bowsmith sees it. What's really happening, though, is that the Neals are taking advantage of Bo Smith. They are using him as free labor on their own farm, while also slowly taking over his farm for their own benefit. And they're doing that all under the guise of friendship. But Bo Smith then becomes Old Nathan's client. But it's not because he's has discovered or realized that the Neals are shady and are trying to defraud him of his property and are exploiting him in other ways as well. It's really that his horse goes missing. And he really loves that horse and he wants to find it. And he's already asked the Neals for help and they've pretended to help him and told him that there's just nothing to be done for it. But old Nathan intuitively knows, and it it doesn't require any magic to do this, but he just intuitively knows that, hey, the Neals have the horse because the Neals are terrible people, right? Old Nathan sees what is going on here. But the deal is that the Neal family paterfamilias, who is referred to as the Baron, is also a type of cunning man, a type of sorcerer here. And so in this story, Old Nathan has an antagonist who has to be overcome. And he is, of course, overcome. Old Nathan uses a little, some more trickery here to overcome him. And very nicely, and, and unexpectedly, surprisingly, again, this trickery also leads to the resurrection of Spanish King. Old Nathan's bullfriend who sacrificed himself back in the first story. So we're getting more of the the sort of downward trajectory of an arc in the story. This was an extremely dark story. Uh, if you weren't expecting it, it starts out uh, kind of really charming, and Old Nathan is feels really realistic, where he knows somebody needs to care for this kid who's in his twenties, but is basically I don't know a, a nine to twelve year old mentally. And he doesn't want to do it, which I think is, uh, I don't know, maybe we all think we'd want to take on that burden, but old Nathan doesn't, but he knows he's got to do something to help. He's got to at least get this kid's horseback. And the way he goes about it is fantastic. The number of times he runs into a wall because the kid does things that he shouldn't. And then the way Nathan feels guilt about him having to use this kid in order to get what he wants out of the situation is really just very well realized and well written um but not it's dark it's just dark uh but i really love this story this was one where this story made me realize just how perfectly paced and how tightly constructed these stories are most of these stories are 60 plus pages and you know you look at the uh, a piece, and you see the chapter titles and how long you're going to be reading a story for. And you're like, okay, another 60 pages. But I sat down and read this one and it just moved so quickly. I, I read it just, I just moved through it. I didn't even realize how many pages I was reading. And it really put me in awe of David Drake's ability here to, to, to tell a tale, to pace it perfectly with dialogue, with detailed, in, like, with bits of detail about the world, with character stuff going on. This story to me is, um, you know, a near masterpiece in the collection. Drake makes excellent use here of the three-beat structure when we're dealing with the setbacks that he experiences when he's relying too much on on the kid, on, on, on Bo Smith, to... Well, pull his own weight here in the attempt to, to, to defeat the Neals and get his horse back, where old Nathan twice realizes that or learns that Bo Smith simply cannot carry out simple instructions. And in particular, what he can't do is subterfuge. He can't lie. He can't keep a secret. And so then in traditional three beat structure is you get you get two instances of that. And then on the third beat, you have to subvert the expectations there. And so what we get is old Nathan leans into it. He says, okay, well, what I'm going to do now is rely on Bo Smith not being able to keep a secret. So I'm going to tell him that the next step we're doing has to be kept secret. But in fact, what I actually want, my new plan now is going to rely on the Baron learning the secret and, but also feeling like 
he's learned something he shouldn't know, that he won't realize that I actually want him to know this. And that's how it works. And that's, I think, a big part. That's kind of the, the backbone of the, the pacing that you're talking about there, Brandon, is the way that he uses that story structure so expertly and in such a way that you don't even notice that it's happening, you know, until you're starting to outline some notes for, for right. talking about the story on a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> right, because you're so interested in the way the Neil family functions. I mean, this, is, this family is a, a family of cultists, basically. And so there's this whole level of interest there. And, and just with a small amount of space, Drake is able to deep and uh, what is going on with these characters. And I, this this is just a great bit of writing. Oh, you're so right. The Neil family is totally compelling. I mean, there's some salaciousness going on here. There's some hints that uh, the sexual morality of this this family is is not in keeping with our own contemporary They're yeah. that's that that's what i'm trying to say that's the much better <laughs> way to say it yes that seems to be happening here it's never made explicit but there are definitely some some serious business hints that that's going on and this really is the first story that feels, I think, Lovecraftian, right? We definitely had the gold felt like an M.R. James story. This now feels like a Lovecraft story in the sense that we're getting a bit of rural uh, America uh, fleshed out for us and seeing these kinds of uh, farmer slash wizards, you know, you know, where Lovecraft is doing that in uh, the hills of Western Massachusetts. Now we've got this happening in the hills of central Tennessee and it feels spot on. And actually this is something that David Drake carries into the next story, almost certainly, although I don't know for sure, but almost certainly intentionally. So when in the final, story that you're going to talk about here, Brandon, the first character that we meet in that story is named uh, Tillinghast. He's the sheriff, and Tillinghast is the name of one of the old families in H.P. Lovecraft's Providence. And you and I have, have encountered the Tillinghast family before when we covered from beyond as our, our live show at PhilCon. So David Drake has even brought a specifically Lovecraftian name into the last story here, and it's awesome. Well, the last story is called The Box, and, and you're right, not just to point out the Lovecraftian uh, nature of this story, perhaps, but to me, this is the story with the most real like horror elements. It's got the highest stakes, and not just that, the story really works as both a climax and a denouement of much of what has come before in the other four stories. The plot is basically this. Bully Ranston buys a mysterious box that belonged to his abusive father at a sheriff's auction of the Neal Farm. Uh, remember the Neal Farm? <laughs> right? We just talked about them <laughs> from the last story. As Bully uncovers the secret of the box, he becomes a different man. He becomes more like his father in ways that he never imagined. He starts abusing Ellie and gambling away his and her possessions, and becoming an alcoholic. Old Nathan interferes with Bully's goings-on when Bully tries to steal from Old Nathan's barn. And then Old Nathan uncovers the secret of the box himself. Remember, he really cares for Ellie. Uh, he also has some, I don't know, long association with Bully's mother. I don't want to say too much more about what goes on in this story. This story has a surprise ending, uh, not a twist, just very surprising in the direction that it goes. I couldn't have guessed what's going on. I couldn't have guessed what was going on with the box, but it was better than I, it's better than I could have imagined because the box, the empty box is such a generic MacGuffin that I was like, uh, I'll just, okay, this is the last story. This story blew me away. I loved this one. I loved every choice David Drake made, and I don't want to spoil the ending for anybody, um, but this story is worth the price of admission alone, especially if you've read the previous four. All right, Brandon, I will I will follow your cue here and will not say anything as well to spoil the ending, other than a few things here. One, just to say that it has a happy ending for, for old Nathan. There's a real arc here where he's going to get to essentially, in some ways, start his life over as a younger man and to a younger man who has not been wounded and traumatized through his wartime experiences, get to live the, the life that he might have been able to live if war hadn't come for him, which is a fantastic character arc. And the other thing is just to say that although I was talking about Tillinghast as uh, being from the story From Beyond, which we have covered, what Drake is really doing here is 
invoking the Tillinghast character, really family, as we encounter them in Charles Dexter Ward. This story is a riff on Lovecraft's novel, his longest work, actually, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, which you and I have not covered at all, Brandon, though someday perhaps we will. This is a real fan favorite. And so uh, Drake knows what he's up to here. He's taken that in some real interesting directions and, and of course, put it in this entirely different setting. And it's a, it's a masterpiece of a story. I mean, I think it's fair to say, as we have been saying, we both really, really loved this book. This whole collection yeah. <laughs> is full of masterpieces, in fact. Yeah, there aren't. There, I think this is the first time in the history of the network that I'm really hesitant to talk about endings here. Just, I, I just want our listeners to feel the surprise that I felt in the way this story unfolded, though maybe if they're familiar with the case of Charles Dexter Ward, they won't they won't be as surprised if they pick up on the same things you did. But I was I was I was really surprised in in how David Drake tied this whole series of pieces together. And that's a topic that we will return to in a little bit when we start talking about the craft of this story. But in between, we want to talk about some of the the bigger thematic and motif. Is motific is not a word, but I set myself up grammatically <laughs> to say that. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is we're going to talk about some themes and motifs here. And Brandon's going to talk to us about seeing old Nathan, both the character and and the book, through the lens of occult detective fiction. You know, I've I've read a little bit of what David Drake has written about these stories, really on his website, and he says his main influence are um, American folk stories that were written down by Richard Chase. Uh, he was a 20th century uh, folklorist who published a collection of 19th century folk tales called the Jack Tales. But I, I I think that there's a lot more going on behind the curtain here than Drake initially leads on. I've been listening slowly to one of the great courses uh, on mystery and suspense. The great courses you can just get them from your library. They're great for road trips. They're like 30-minute lectures. And this one on mystery and suspense is a lot of fun. And there's a lecture on the way that the American dime novel led to the popularity of crime fiction and detective fiction, especially in the early part of the 20th century, like the first third uh of the 20th century. And, you know, we know that crime fiction and detective fiction is what occult detectives are based on. And one of the popular trends of the dime novel, according to this uh, course, was to give characters names that started with the word old. Um, and this was due to the massive popularity of a detective character named Old Sleuth. Also the first, I think, time Sleuth was used uh, to talk about a detective. So, the American dime novel was also fascinated with the American West and pioneer and cowboy adventure stories and stuff. So it seems to me as though David Drake is sort of tugging on that style and tradition of storytelling and adding a supernatural element to it. Uh, not to mention, uh, which you're going to talk about with dialect, Glenn, um, you know, the, the localization and the regional uh, local color and regionalism that that is really important to these stories. Um, that was also important to these dime novels, but it's really the supernatural element, the spirits and curses and real magic that put these stories kind of more firmly in the occult detective realm of storytelling. But there are a few things that, you know, distinguish these stories from something that you'd find in, say, a Harry Dresden novel, which, you know, is the most famous occult detective in fiction today. First of all, I really want to emphasize that David Drake brings a real sense of wonder to the magic in these stories. Even old Nathan is in awe of how magic is done. I'll read a passage later on. Uh, that's pretty much all we get of the you know quote unquote magic system uh, because I really like David Drake's approach to magic in these stories. But second of all, these stories act more as crime stories than detective stories. Old Nathan is more of a fixer than a sleuth. And I really love the choice that David Drake made to go in this direction with an occult detective character. It's not something I've seen a lot. It's These stories have less of a procedural flair to them. There's something less scientific about them. And I know that these stories weren't huge hits in the 90s when they were published, but my feeling is that today they'd be so refreshing to read to so many readers of science fiction and fantasy who have become acquainted and used to you know, fantasy 
fantasy procedurals and even epic fantasy novels with really strict world building and systems of magic. To me, there's a real sense of wonder to these stories and a sense of possibility in the world that makes you as a reader really feel like anything at all could happen that I think you'd be hard-pressed to find in some of the best-selling series today. Well, this is certainly one of the things that I always go to detective fiction for. I mean, just regular detective fiction, not necessarily occult detective fiction, though that too, of course, is this sense of place, this sense of the local, right? The, the, the setting of the story as itself being one of the characters, where we get a real feel for the setting. I mean, usually it's an urban setting. Here it is a rural setting, but for the material environment of it, the built human environment of it, but also the the weather and other elements of the natural environment. But then, of course, also the social environment where we do actually get callbacks in book 13 to minor characters we met in book nine, as you invoked earlier, Brandon. (laughs) That sort of thing is something I really, really love. And Drake has all of those hallmarks of detective fiction, classic detective fiction in, in here. He's also got some of the elements, especially of the the hard-boiled detective, which is you know, my my favorite type of detective story. Nathan is really motivated here. I mean, he's he's got a mission to help the helpless, though he also will take money from rich jerks. And it turns out that in this world, as it is the classic case in <laughs> hard-boiled detective fiction, uh, you can't have rich without being a jerk, right? Rich people equal bad people in this story, and money itself is a kind of source of magical corruption, right? It corrupts everything that it touches. That's a real hallmark of hard-boiled detective fiction as it was pioneered by Dashiell Hammett and, and Raymond Chandler especially. That is all right here in Old Nathan. Also fairly classic, though this shows up more in Hammett than it does in Chandler, but classic is the hard-boiled detective as someone who's been traumatized by war and therefore unable to participate in society. Drake has put a real Hemingway-esque and unexpected twist on, on that here with this character, but it's something that I think really, really works. And so Drake has taken all of these ingredients here that would go just fine, that really belong in Hammett's San Francisco or Chandler's Los Angeles, and has moved them here to Middle Tennessee, circa 1830. And it's, it's super awesome. I love it so much. But I mean, the fact that it takes place in 1830 means, as we discussed before, that it's historical fiction. And that's really your wheelhouse, Glenn. So why why don't you talk to us about what that means? Yeah, there are a few points here that I I, want to make. And one of them is that, well, Drake doesn't ever give us any explicit dates in this story. He just builds the world the way that a fantasy writer, as Drake is, would build the world by giving us bits and pieces of information when we need it for the immediate context of the story or understanding something about a character and allowing us over the span of hundreds of pages to piece that information together and construct our own history of this world. And the anchor point for that here, though, is that we know that Old Nathan went to the Battle of King's Mountain with uh, John Seaver. And that's all that's ever explained. We don't get told what war that was in or who Seaver was or anything like that. But the Battle of King's Mountain was a major battle in the American War of Independence. It was fought in October of 1780 near King's Mountain, North Carolina, uh, though the battle was technically fought just over the border in South Carolina. And I think if you live in either of those states, that might really matter to you. So I'm wanting to be clear (laughs) about that there. This is a really important, but also a really interesting battle in that no British soldiers were involved. It was only soldiers from the two different American political factions involved in this war, uh, with the one exception that the commander of the Loyalist militia was, in fact, a uh, a mid-ranking British officer. This is actually something that Old Nathan remarks on obliquely to another character when he says that he didn't see many British soldiers that day, which is a, a great touch there. And we know then that Old Nathan was part of the unit that was led from Tennessee by John Seaver. Uh, John Seaver was one of the, the founding fathers of Tennessee. He was the first governor of Tennessee when it became a state in 1796. So Old Nathan is really only one of uh, about 100 people who would have gone with Seaver. And afterwards, that really would have given Nathan a, a kind of special status as one of the handful of people who went and fought for 
independence, which also for the settlers of Tennessee, who were very much in favor of independence, meant a lot of other things. It meant statehood. It meant expansion into the uh, territory that we eventually call the Louisiana Purchase as well, and a real opening up of of that settler society. So it was something that really mattered to them. And this would have given all of the veterans of this war, and especially this battle, a real special status. But Old Nathan seems to have eschewed that in order to live alone in the woods because he's dealing with the fact and, and also, I think, the psychological trauma of the wound that he received in the battle. And this is a really great way to do both historical fiction, right, to root your story in its setting and and show us the way that the character is playing on our expectations of what that setting would be like, but also shows all the hallmarks, all the real skill of an awesome fantasy writer, an awesome fantasy world builder. It really is amazing the way that David Drake relies on the stylistic choices of fantasy writing to build the world that also are that also refer to things in our real world and our real past and i just think it's amazing i also wondered glenn if you came across you know in these stories um any indication that old nathan was involved in uh, like the battle of new orleans in the war of 1812 or anything like that um I, I was wondering about that as i was kind of researching some of the stuff in this story I don't think so. I think that he very definitely just came back from the War of Independence and and settled here and and didn't leave again. In fact, I think he actually tells us explicitly that he really hasn't left uh, more than a two days gentle ride uh, from his log cabin since he came back from the war. Though it's possible he could have been referring to the Battle of New Orleans as a, as another battle <laughs> that he went and fought. Though I don't think so. I mean, I think at that point he would have been. I mean, he would have been middle aged at that point. So I think that's right, actually right. just a little bit implausible. Though this is one of the things that. Of course, happens to us uh, living in the present and looking back at the past. That although we are well aware that twenty years in our own life takes a really long time, <laughs> we forget that that's true when we're just looking at dates that happened a long time ago. We think, "Oh, that was only twenty years apart." We forget that that's a that's a long time. That's a long time to to live your live your life. There are some other cool things that Drake is doing here through the lens of historical fiction, and one of them is to build out this settler society. And this is a place where we can think about. New Orleans here, Brandon, because, well, old Nathan is old, right? And because of that, we actually see a lot of settler society as it's changed over time here. For one, old Nathan remembers when there were Native Americans around in his youth. He also pointedly remembers how the frontiersmen were actually more likely to harm you than the natives were, even though this is a period in which settlers were and frontiersmen were waging wars against settled indigenous populations, the Cherokee Wars, the Creek Wars, and, and so on. Also, Old Nathan has now lived through a massive growth in the settler population following the War of Independence. Towns have grown. People are exploiting each other rather than being supportive. And even this small community here in central Tennessee is now connected to New Orleans. But we also still see how the early days of this settler society were dominated by extended family relationships and the control of land. And all of this is also another way that really calls back to... Chandler and Hammett as they are building up American hard-boiled detective fiction, because famously, this is a type of detective fiction that does not grow up in the massive, sprawling, and old metropolises of America. It's not growing up in New York or Philadelphia or even Chicago. That fiction is growing up in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and especially Los Angeles, which is regarded as a new and young town that is experiencing a boom in the 20th century, and that it is the boom there, the new money, the new wealth, the new affluence coming into Los Angeles that makes it this place of corruption that requires a paladin character like Philip Marlowe to uh, put right what is going wrong to help the helpless. And we see Drake doing the same thing here in Old Nathan, but thinking about a different type of frontier society, an actual early 19th century settler society in the early days of the United States. But he's transporting a lot of the same elements from Chandler's Los Angeles and putting them here. And again, all of these things are, are elements of what made the dime novel so popular that a lot of this type of fiction grew out of. The experience of the frontier, the adventures of pioneers, um, and, and the, 
I don't know, fear and worry, not just of man against nature, but of uh, somebody in your party being a villain or the, the land being stolen out from under you. Um, and I, and I just, I love what, I love what Drake is doing here. I especially love, and it would be hard for me to overstate how much I love the, the, just the local color of this story and the cast of characters that Drake has situated in this time period. This is definitely a world that could fit a ton more than we actually get. There could, there could be more than five old Nathan stories, even though we do get a nice arc here. You know, I think what we would need then is prequel stories, right? right, right. Since he, you know, the story ends with him essentially getting out of the detective business, which is something that classic detectives never get to do. They're always trapped in the endless cycle of, well, the endless cycle of writers needing to make a living, I guess, is part of the, the endless <laughs> the cycle Being there. condemned to be a hard-boiled <laughs> detective in a novel, yeah. Right. I mean, even Sherlock Holmes, whom Doyle you know, killed off, uh, had to bring back because I don't know, Doyle needed a new house or had to pay college tuition or something like that. <laughs> the queen demanded it. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's a good motive. That's <laughs> <laughs> But it does have a happy ending. So we would need a prequel, but it also is a world I think where you could tug on some other strings, tell different types of stories with this cast of characters, or, you know, you could set this nearby. Uh, you could set this in a different part of Tennessee, which would actually be interesting. You could set this uh, over near Knoxville or set it over near Memphis, which would be very different societies. I mean, if you put this in Memphis, then you would be dealing with this massively developing slave society as well. So that would be another way to explore uh, a different aspect of the 19th century South that uh, isn't really germane to what Drake is is doing here. Uh, I mean, in terms of, of what this settler society in central Tennessee was like. But there are other ways that uh, another writer, perhaps as kind of an homage to what Drake has has done here, could take some cues and, and, and tug on some of these other strings and write a little bit more. And I, I'm not saying that you have to do it, Brandon, but I would I would enjoy <laughs> if you did. Yeah, I think that, well, I was just thinking that the Neils themselves could could carry a whole season of True Detective or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And wow, that's a, that's a great, a great comparison there. I mean, this does have a lot of the feel of, of True Detective to it for sure. Well, I guess the question that I've got next, Brandon, is, is which of these stories did you like best? It's really hard for me to answer this question. As we said, I, reading through these stories, I just really appreciated the returning characters the way all these callbacks and anchors worked to knit together this really great world. I wasn't expecting until the last story, these stories to come together in a novelistic sense in the way that they did. And so even though you could read the last story as a standalone novella, it's that tightly constructed. The way it ties together the collection as a novel really surprised me. In fact, that last novella, The Box, consistently surprised me on every level of storytelling. So it's my favorite of the bunch, though I also really enjoyed Gold. I said The Bullhead is a masterpiece. Uh, It's comedy. Um, And I I just, I don't know. It's a masterpiece, but you and I are not the biggest fans of comedy, I think, at the end of the day. So the the Bullhead got edged out of the running for that reason. Um, The Box is my favorite story. What about you, Glenn? Well, the box was certainly the most emotionally satisfying of of the stories here. And in fact, you know, I frequently talk about on the shows that we do on the network how I would be pretty happy only ever reading the first act of books and then just not finishing them because <laughs> I like stories getting started and the world building, getting to know the characters and, and so on. But this is actually the rare instance in which the ending really moved me. The ending really uh, compelled me. And so it was not my favorite story, but it was definitely the one that I found the most emotionally fulfilling feeling, the most emotionally satisfying. But uh, my two contenders here were The Gold and The Bullhead. Uh, that stories number two and three. Both of these had a traditional detective story hooked to them. Uh, there's a client. Then it turns out that there's more to the case than it immediately appears. But I did like The Gold better than The Bullhead. I mean, for all the reasons that you talked about The the Bullhead, you know, it, it's got some comedy there, which is not usually to our particular tastes. But I think ultimately, really, I liked The Gold best because of the 
the background material about the development of the settler society, learning about being a wealthy landowner, learning about uh, being a real estate mogul here. I really enjoyed uh, learning about the the economics and and the the sort of social and institutional history of this world that that Drake is building here. So the the gold was my favorite. But really, you can't go wrong reading this straight through from you know first story to last story. I, that's what that's what I would recommend to to listeners who haven't read it but are thinking about picking it up now. Yeah, see, this is this is a I don't know one of the few times I'm going to say definitely buy this book if you have, if you haven't if you're interested in this type of storytelling. We got books that have um, kind of rough covers that that I think would turn off a typical reader. Don't judge this book by the cover. It's the it's amazing. It's so well written and so consistently fun to read. I don't know. I'm I'm excited to return to it, and it's really made me want to go back into more of David Drake's back catalog. And there are some, I think, dazzling passages of prose here, Brandon. Did you have a favorite passage you want to share with listeners? Yeah, I picked one from the last story here, and and not necessarily because it's um, you know the most beautifully written passage in the book. I'm sure you're going to find some great nature passages, um, <laughs> but it's one that highlights the, the way that wonder is a feature of the magic in this story and i and i love that david drake took the time to define it even if it's in the last story um so this is this is pretty near the end of the whole collection i should say i guess in in preparing our readers for this um old nathan has a magic knife that he can hide in in a shelf in anywhere or nowhere it's mysterious and so this is uh, referring to the knife Old Nathan rubbed his right biceps with his left hand, then raised his arm to put the jackknife away. There wasn't any wonder about the knife. Its blades were good steel, with a working edge on the larger one, and on the smaller, a wire edge that could serve as a razor at need. The wonder of the place where Old Nathan kept the knife was another question, but it was a question to which the cunning man himself had no answer. It was like all the rest of his art, a pattern of things known but not studied the way a clockwork toy moves without understanding in its spring. And if the toy should cease to move, the spring would be none the wiser for that result either. And I, and I just love, this is a passage that talks about Nathan's relationship to his magic. If he has it, he has it. If he doesn't, he doesn't. He feels his way through things. He, he picks up on the patterns. And I just, I, I, I don't know, I, this passage really spoke to me um, about what Drake was doing with what we as readers, how we as readers should respond to magic in this world. Right. I mean, this is central to old Nathan's character is that he has been living with this power for his really his entire adult life, right? Since coming home from the, the war, he's had these powers and they have the, the powers themselves in some sense have shaped his life. The wound in particular, I think has shaped his life, but yet at the same time, the, the magic, the powers, these are not things that he feel like an identity for him. And and that's actually a big part of, of his character arc is that he he's fine. He would be fine letting go of his power. So we aren't going to get any stories about old Nathan temporarily losing his powers because of, you know, the different color of kryptonite or something like that, right. and then <laughs> needing to get them back or something like that. That's just not the type of character that Drake is building here. Old Nathan is a real character who is grounded in his world and would like nothing more than to just be a regular person, uh, to, to turn back the clock and have lived the life that he expected he was going to live when he was 18, 19, 20, before he went off uh, to be a soldier and was grievously wounded. Yeah. Uh, this, I mean, this whole collection is great. Glenn, what passage did you bring for today? <laughs> So I'm going to I'm going to cheat and I'm going to read two but I I will start with the the more prosaic one here and I was tempted as you predicted Brandon to do a bit of nature reading but actually I I'm picking a passage from very early on in the first story it's only on on page 4 of the book that we've got that's just a real casual world building paragraph and just taking us through old Nathan's day The coffee boiled on the coals in an enameled iron pot Old Nathan had roasted the green beans in his frying pan the night before and had ground them at dawn when he rose. He lifted the pot's wire handle with a billet of light wood while the dog padded in quickly to snuffle the interior of the cabin and the boardman boy followed more gingerly. And that's it. It's just three sentences that 
tell us that he's making coffee and introduce us a little bit to his house. But this is some of this fantasy style world building that we get here where Drake knows that a part of the way that he's going to build the reality of this world for us is to make sure that we understand the materiality of it, that we understand what people eat and drink, how they get the 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 agricultural products that go into that, and also the tools that they are using to make it, and where in their home they do that, and so on, what their life is like. It's just a real casual detail that interrupts a conversation, actually, with, uh, with the client here, and it's just a masterful bit of world building, and, but, but so quiet about it as well. Also, it's about coffee, and I love coffee. Yeah, I was going to say, I should have guessed that you would have picked a passage about making a drink. Uh, there right. Are, there aren't <laughs> many in here, but uh, you found the one. <laughs> right. That's one of the features of the story, is that there's not nearly as much booze as there normally is in detective fiction, but there is an emphasis here on coffee, and I think, uh, I think that's a nice stand-in. Yeah, old Nathan is always going for coffee if he can find it. The other passage that I want to read here is the very last paragraph of the book, the last two sentences of the book. This is less, uh, this is less, I want to share a beautiful passage with people and more me thinking about my way of operating when we are doing our regular format episodes here on Elder Sign, where we do a recap and a commentary and where, uh, whether or not it's my job to do the recap or the commentary, I think uh, probably 90% of the time I want to pause and zoom in on the first paragraph and spend, I don't know, 80 minutes or so talking about the first sentence, the first paragraph, <laughs> something like that. But I don't think once have I called attention to the final sentence of a story. Again, this just goes back to my proclivity for beginnings rather than endings. But this is such a beautiful ending. I just want to, I don't know, make amends uh, to all the stories that I have slighted by never reading their, their last sentences here and just read this into the microphone here. So this is how the book ends. She looked back once from the road. In the shadow of the shed, there was a faint glimmer as of fairy lights, but very faint, and the young couple had many miles yet to ride. And this is just a beautiful ending. It, it carries with it this imagery that uses a simile that reminds us that we have just read a bit of supernatural fiction, a, a bit of speculative fiction, but also is looking ahead, looking ahead to the, the change, right? Sees the end of the arc actually still maybe as only the halfway point of drawing a circle or an oval, I don't know, something like that. And it's also very, very sentimental, right? Just two sentences that are, are packed with emotion. And I love it. It's one of the things that highlighted the surprise uh, of this whole collection to me, because this sentence is one of the things, which the final thing you read that makes you realize you just read a novel instead of a bunch of short stories. And it's a, mas it's a masterful ending. It's a beautiful ending that you didn't even realize that was the story you were reading until it ends this way. And it's, uh, it's amazing. I'm glad you read that. And thinking about the, the way that this ending makes us realize that although these stories were independent, uh, even if related, we do get this character arc with old Nathan. I think this is a good springboard into talking about the idea of doing a collection like this, using the framework of the collection as its own kind of storytelling device. What are some some technical aspects, Brandon, of, of this that uh, you appreciated? Well, one of the main things that uh, Drake does that he didn't have to do is keep a really small cast of characters outside of the people who are directly involved with the case. But as the story goes on, the people that are kind of the tertiary cast members become the people that old Nathan does the work for for free. And that communicates something emotional about him as a character. And so I really, I really think it's the cast here that as we move through these stories, when we get to the final story, gets us to realize we're reading a story about a place, we're reading a story about the people in that place, and we're reading to see how things are going to work out for old Nathan. And it's not the type of collection where you read each story looking for that stuff. And I don't even know if going back and rereading it, I'd be interested in seeing how those threads are woven through each tale. But they're there. And so when you get to that final story, they're all pulled taut 
and you see the whole picture. And it's, uh, I think that's kind of the, the trick that Drake is, one of the tricks that Drake is using to um, get us to that point where we realize we're reading a novel. And I was really surprised, I think, when I got to the end to realize that it was all going to be pulled together that way, because it really felt like certainly the first two stories, maybe even the first three stories felt like, although, yes, we're we're learning about a place that has a cast of recurring characters, it nonetheless was feeling a little bit like Murder, She Wrote, which has the same thing uh, <laughs> on, you know, in, in, in New England, in Cabot Cove, Maine, right, where we've got a cast of recurring characters, but each episode is you know a standalone uh, detective story that's going to have, you know, it's follow its own trajectory, have its own arcs and so on. And I was really impressed when I got to the end and realized that I had been just missing the fact that Drake had been stringing us along in a big character arc and and doing some other things as well that was going to make the conclusion of this feel like, yes, in fact, we'd been reading something that at least was 30% novel or 40% novel, even while the structure of it was collection of loosely related novellas. One of the things that struck me when actually just looking up the publication information for this book and the stories in it is that two of the stories, The Bowl and The Fool, so story number one and story number four, were actually published in magazines before the book came out. They were both published in 1987. And so to me, that's really interesting because it suggests that those stories were written first without this type of arc in mind, and that what Drake did then was go back and write three more stories so that it could be all published together as a book, right, to get to the the word count, the page length, to make it packageable as a book, but didn't make those stories number one and number two, made them one and number four. So filled in some middle and then put an ending on it. And to me, just thinking with my own writer's hat on, I find that really fascinating as a way of actually approaching taking some stories you've already written and trying to expand them into something that feels more like a novel. I knew that he had published two of these stories prior to them being um, collected and him putting the final touches on uh, the other three. This, but I didn't realize it was one in four. It's very clear that this collection of stories, this novel is a passion project of David Drake's. He knew when he was writing it that they were not really commercially saleable. Um, They were published by uh, his friend, Jim Bain, I think, in the publishing industry, who said of this collection that, uh, well, I didn't lose money on it (laughs) and kind of published it as a favor. And, you know, I I think it's kind of flown under the radar. I I don't even know about this. You would never find this maybe even in a used bookstore today. No, and in fact, you, you you mentioned the cover of the edition that we have. Now, I, I got us new editions of this book in a trade paperback size that are published by Ring of Fire Press, which is uh, a small press run by Eric Flint, who's another uh, member of the, the Bain Publishing Stable of Authors. And yeah, you're right. It doesn't have the greatest cover. I really wanted to get us copies of the book that had the beautiful Larry Elmore covered from 1991. But I was surprised to find that th- this book was only ever published in a mass market format. And normally that wouldn't matter so much, but used mass markets, of course, don't hold up very well. The other thing is that um, I'm going to need to start putting old in front of my name as well, uh, which is to say I need reading glasses uh, for mass market (laughs) books these days and have not, I'm just too lazy to go get them. And so the mass market was out uh, for that. So, um, but yeah, I was surprised. I thought surely, of course, David Drake's a huge name. I, I, as I said, I'm, I'm working on the Lord of Isles as well. And that, you know, I was able to get in a nice, used hardcover edition, which I'm so grateful for. Uh, So I was totally surprised that this just didn't ever, it didn't didn't exist in that format. For me too, the way this story was printed, even though the cover's you know rough, uh, I, I was so grateful for that because the print is big and like you turn the pages faster <laughs> and you move, feel like you're moving through it. Maybe that contributed to my sense that the pacing in each of these stories was was near perfect. Uh, right, right, it could be. Well, I think we're we're slipping into I think lamenting our own old age. So <laughs> we, we are not old, and also our uh, our army experience was not nearly as traumatic as uh, as old Nathan was. No, certainly not. So I think that is probably a good note on which to wrap up this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. 
And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. I have to give a heartfelt thanks to our supporter who commissioned this story. I'm so grateful. I'm so glad. And I cannot wait to have more downtime to read one, the rest of the Lord of the Isles series, um, but even venture into some of David Drake's military sci-fi, which is usually not my cup of tea. But I'm just discovering I love the way David Drake tells stories, and I have a lot to learn from him uh, as a writer. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for commissioning this episode, giving me the opportunity to read David Drake for the first time. It was a lot of fun to do this episode this way, but I was, you know, I was halfway through the second story, Brandon, when I thought, uh, I wish, I wish that we could be doing these stories the way that we normally do things on Elder Sign, which is to, you know, do a single episode for each of these stories and then do a wrap-up episode at the end. And so that has been a real impetus for me to go read more David Drake. And I and that is something that I'm definitely looking forward to doing. And I'll remind listeners, in fact, that I am going to be covering Lord of the Isles over on my solo show, Atos. I'll probably do that in a few months. It takes me a while to do those episodes. But if you have dropped by here simply because you saw that someone had done a podcast episode about David Drake, go subscribe to the show Atos, a speculative fiction book club podcast right now so that uh, you don't miss whenever I do release that. There is a link in the show notes, of course. But then here on Elder Sign, we're going to be back literally tomorrow with the first of three episodes back in Stephen King's Dark Tower series. We're going to be covering the second chapter of The Gunslinger, which is titled The Way Station. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.